so happy to see you here together. Listen, we'll take what we can get. If this, is, if this is how we're doing it, this is how we're doing it. It is amazing to have the opportunity to connect here on a Tuesday night for our brand new JLI class. JLI, of course, stands for Jewish Learning Institute. Um, we teach these courses several times a year. They are uh, just incredibly high quality and high caliber adult education courses, Jewish courses, and I am so glad um, to be here with you. So if this is your first time taking a JLI course with me, welcome. If you've taken a course before with me, a JLI course before with me, and many of you have, many courses in fact, um, I welcome you also. I guess either way, welcome uh, to this experience. So I want to begin by of course introducing uh, the name of the course. The name of the course is Secrets of the Bible. And in order to kind of jump into the theme, I want to tell you a story. The story goes that there was once a boy, a young boy, who came home from Hebrew school. Jerry, get ready. <laughs> there was a boy who came home from Hebrew school. And he came home. Yeah, it was Sunday. He comes home and his parents ask him, so, David, what did you learn in school today? And, you know, the first reaction, the first response of all children is, what do children say when you ask them what they learned in school? What do they say? Nothing. 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 By the way, if you're asked after tonight, what did you learn at uh, Rabbi Ari's JLI class? Please, please do not give that answer. I'm hoping you have something solid, more than solid, to give. But I digress. Back to the story. So they ask him, he says, nothing. He says, no, really, what did you learn? He says, well, I learned the story about Moses, General Moses. So he led the Jewish brigade. Um, they were in Egypt, and he led them out of Egypt, and, and he... He fought with, with Pharaoh, and he was strong, and he brought the artillery, he brought the brigades, and he brought the cavalry, and he brought the tanks, and the battalions, and the submarines, and everything. And then he fin they finally got out, um, and then they, they faced the sea, and so immediately the, uh, the, the Corps of Engineers got together, and they built a bridge to be able to cross the sea, and they built the bridge, and they got across, and then the Egyptians were trailing, so they set... Um, explosive devices along the bridge, and then when the Egyptians were, were crossing over, boom, they blew up the bridge, and the Egyptians fell in the water and drowned, and the Jews were saved. And the parents are looking at each other, and, and they say to the child, David, is that what you learned in Hebrew school today? He says, nah, but you know what? If you heard what my rabbi said, if you heard the story that my rabbi told, you wouldn't believe him either. So that this is a classic joke. Hold on. You got it? No? Nah, you missed it. Okay. Right, waiting for the rim shot. All right. Cherry's usually got it on the app. So here's the deal. I think, oh, we got it. I think like this. When it comes to biblical stories, oftentimes we, I don't know, we present company excluded, I'm sure, but many people look at them as I'm going to use a Yiddish term here. So if you know it, you know it. If not, I'll explain it. Uh, Bubba mices. You know what Bubba mices are? Yeah, Bubba mices. How do you translate Bubba mices? It's um, fairy tales, right? Stories that you tell. Huh? It's Bubba mices. Bubba mices, exactly. It's stories, uh, stories that the Bubba, stories that the Bubba might tell, stories that uh, are maybe are not so, are not so true, not so realistic but stories nonetheless. 
And I think the reason why oftentimes biblical stories get thought of in that category is because for one simple reason. It's because we are learning these stories, many of us are learning these stories as kids. Now, far be it from me to take away the notion of learning Torah and Torah stories, uh, kids learning Torah and Torah stories. Of course not. I'm not saying that. But the problem is that when you learn something as a child, you picture it and you imagine it in a childish fashion. And the truth is it's even taught in a way that's relatable to a child. Are you with me on this? Yes? Hey, Mindy. Good to see you. So what's happening is that we're hearing the stories, we're relating to the stories, we're um, internalizing the stories, contextualizing the stories in a childish and childlike fashion. And the problem is that for many people, it never goes beyond that. In other words, unfortunately, the reality is that many people don't have the opportunity to continue advancing in, the, in Torah study, in biblical examination, as they get older. Why not? For, for a number of reasons, a variety of reasons which are, you know, it, it's uh, opportunity, um, desire, whatever it is. But the bottom line is, if we study the stories as kids, if we study the story of Adam, if we learn the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we learn the story of Noah's Ark. We hear these stories as kids, and that becomes the extent of our knowledge of the stories. It will necessarily be thought of as a childish fairy tale because it was studied kind of in that way. So what this course does is it gives you and I the opportunity, and I would say a very unique opportunity, to re-examine these stories to dig up the most classic stories of the Torah, the most classic biblical stories, and re-examine them through the lens of deep, deep, deep Jewish thought. In fact, we're going to go to the deepest points of Jewish thought, all the way to the Kabbalah, the, uh, the, the body of, uh, of, of Jewish study that is, um, that is called Kabbalah, Jewish Esoteric Wisdom. So this course... And by the way, I should mention that for millennia, studying Torah in this way was reserved for a very select group of individuals, individuals who had studied for years and perfected themselves and been granted entry into a very special group. Well, congratulations. Welcome to the group. Now, but today, well, first of all, yes, but second of all, today, these, these, these teachings are more widespread, although still, I would say, not, not very well known. I'm going to go, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say this at all. I am going to, to say that the ideas, some of the ideas some of you will be familiar with in, in other, from, from other contexts and other classes, other, other areas of study. But the way we retell these stories in this course, I think for all of you, will be brand new and fresh and profoundly meaningful. The course, the premise of this course really is the fact that like in everything in this world, the Torah also has a body and a soul. I mean, think about it. Everything in existence has a body and a soul. I'm not just talking about human beings. I'm talking about everything. For example, think about language. Language has a body and a soul. I'm, I'm giving it just an example, a body and soul. Language has a body and a soul. 
Think about the written language. You're reading a book, and you encounter strange markings on, on white paper, right, on a white background. Those markings are letters and words. So that's the body of language, the form that the letters are taking. And what's the soul? Of course, the soul is the meaning that those letters convey. So if I write three letters on a page, and the letters are C-A-T, so you look at, that, you look at that, those letters in that word, C-A-T, and you know that it is a cat. I'm a good lip reader. It's a cat, right? So, so if, if, if I write that on, 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 on the paper and you look at it, so we, we, we all know that it's a cat. Now, those letters aren't a cat. Those letters are letters that convey the message of a cat, which is a thing. So in language, there's body and soul. Body being the, char the characters and the words themselves, and of course the soul, the message that they convey. The same thing is true in every area of life. And the same thing is true also with Torah. Torah conveys, sorry, Torah contains both a body, in other words, it contains the basic stories and the basic laws as written on the surface, and Torah also contains a soul. The Torah contains a mystical dimension, a spiritual dimension that drives the rest. And like body and soul, let's use now a human example, like body and soul, you know, a body without a soul is simply not alive. A body without a soul is not that useful, right? Body with a soul, very useful. Body without a soul is dead. The same thing is true with Torah. If we study Torah, if we just study the body of Torah without its soul, we run the risk of encountering a Torah. I'm not going to use the word dead, but it's th that is less vibrant and less lively than it ought to be. Kabbalah, the works of Jewish mysticism and esoterica, the works of Kabbalah are the soul of Torah that breathe life into all of the laws, all of the rituals, all of the traditions, and all of the stories. Throughout the next six weeks, we'll have the opportunity to look at classic stories. You all know the classic stories. Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark. I'll go through all six um, in kind of this introduction in a moment. We're going to look at these old stories and breathe new life into them through the lens of Kabbalah. And will transform them from possibly Baba Mises, or God forbid, from us looking at them maybe as Baba Mises, to being the most relevant tales that we could hear right now, or relevant messages that we could hear right now in 2020. I want to bring you in on a, on a bit of a paradox. The more, not esoteric, but the more spiritual we get in understanding the stories, the more practical they are. So, let me give you a way to understand this. If we're reading about a story about Adam and Eve from like thousands of years ago, or a story about Abraham or Moses, etc., how relevant is that to us? It's their story, not ours. Right? It's a story about Abraham. It's not my story. But the moment we strip the story away from its, from its, um, its uh, limited box, limited constraints, from the parameters, the technical parameters, and open it up to its spiritual message, that will become immediately relevant to all of us in every time, every era, every place, every challenge. And it will be relevant for us today. All right, so that's a bit of an introduction. Now, the stories we're going to cover in this series are as follows. Number one, 
which is tonight, the story of Adam and Eve. Number two, the story next week, the story of Noah's Ark. Then we have the story of Jacob and Esau, twins. Uh, then we have the story of Joseph and his brothers. Then lesson five is the story of the golden calf. And lesson six is the story of Korah's, Korach's attempted coup. One more point. So these are six of the classic tales that we're going to completely uh, um, retell and reimagine in a way that is, I think, marvelous and breathtaking. One final point, and this is something to remember for all of the classes. Every single lesson in this course follows the exact same formula. So learn the formula and you'll be able to, to in your own mind, follow along step by step throughout each of the lessons. Five steps. So the cl every class contains five acts. Act one, telling the story. Act two, asking the questions on the story. Act three, teaching the Kabbalah related to the lesson, to the story. Act four, answering the questions that we asked on the story and putting the story back together again. And act five is extracting life lessons. So again, we have the story, the questions, the Kabbalah, the answers, and the lessons. Are you with me? Five steps? Yes? Perfect. Okay. We have a lot to get to. Let us begin. So as I mentioned a moment ago, and as you know from all of the information that we've sent out, emails and the webpage, etc., tonight the focus is on Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge, uh, sorry, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we're going to go through the story. The way we're going to do this, as I said before, is step one. Act one is to go through the story step by step. What I'm going to do, and if you, if you received the book, great, you can use the book. If you have not yet received the book, then you can just follow along. Um, I sent out, you should have received it. I emailed a PDF of the, of the first lesson. Um, you could have that open or you have your book or I'm going to share my screen and I'll, I'm going to pull up the text myself right here. What I'm going to do is I will read uh, the story. And the reason that I'm going to read the story is that it's, uh, it's a little bit long. And I want to make sure that, uh, um, you know, I, 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 I love you guys too much to call on any one person to read all of this text. But I'm going to go through it uh, at, a, at a fairly quick clip. Um, one more announcement, a technical announcement before we begin. Everybody is muted, but you can unmute yourself at any time. And I actually encourage you to unmute yourself to ask any questions that you might have. To add a comment or an insight, please, this is meant to be a discussion, a dialogue, a conversation, and not a monologue. So please jump in at any point in time. Uh, before we begin, any questions thus far? Okay, let us begin. I'm going to share my screen with you. And the file that I've opened right now is the PDF of the same, uh, the same file that I sent, sent out earlier. Here we go. Lesson one, the tree of knowledge. So this is the story. No commentary yet. No questions yet. Here's the story from the original verses. It's really important. Let me just note this before we start. It's really important that we study the story from the original so that we can have an accurate understanding of what we're talking about. If we're, op if we're operating from memory, we're liable to, uh, to be, you know, to forget something or to add something. We have to, we're going to start from the text itself and then open up from there. Um, one more point. As I go through the story, I want you to think of your own questions on the story. Think of any and all questions. You can write them down. 
You can keep them filed in your head. After I finish reading the verses, I'm going to ask you the question. Tell me your, I'm going to ask, pose the question to the group. Tell me the questions that you have on all these verses. So let's begin. Think of the questions. The Garden of Eden and the Tree of Knowledge. This is Genesis 2, 8 through 9. God Almighty planted a garden in, in Eden, in the east, and he placed there the man that he had created. And God Almighty made grow from the soil every tree that is desirable to the sight and good for eating, and the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. All right, so that's the context. That's the setting. Right? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, and we have two trees that are mentioned, tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and bad. Next, mankind's mission. God Almighty took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The commandment. And God Almighty commanded the man to say, Of all the trees of the garden, eat you shall eat. And of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, do not eat of it. Because on the day you eat of it, die you shall die. The verses continue. They were both naked. The man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Let's continue. Let's talk about the serpent now. The serpent was the most shrewd of all animals. And the serpent said to the woman, No, die you will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be as God, knowers of good and bad. Transgression. The woman saw that the tree is good for eating, and that it is lusty to the eyes. And the tree is desirable to make wise. And she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Immediately thereafter, we have the next item. And the eyes of the both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed the leaves of a fig tree and they made themselves girdles. All right, now the aftermath. The fallout. To the woman he said... Oh, so I should mention. So when God confronts Adam and says, what do you do? Adam says, don't blame me, blame Eve. When God confronts Eve, Eve says, don't blame me, blame the serpent. Everyone passes the buck. There's a fallout. So here we go. This is what God says to Eve. To the woman, he said, multiply. I will multiply your pain and your pregnancy. In pain, you will give birth to children. And to your husband will be your desire, and he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, cursed is the soil on your account. Painfully you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the soil, as from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The final piece of this story is right here. Adam and Eve banished from the garden. God Almighty made coats of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And God Almighty said, Here the human has become like one of us, to know good and bad. And now perhaps he will send forth his hand, and he, will, and he will take also from the tree of life, and he will eat and live forever. And God Almighty sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the soil wherefrom he was taken. And here we have the entire arc of the story from the origins of the Garden of Eden to placing man in there, to giving man, Adam and Eve, mankind, their commandment, violation of the commandment, the fallout, and the expulsion. That's the story. All right. Like I promised, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to tell me what are your questions on these verses. Go ahead. Any and all questions are fair game. I, 
I, I can't promise that, I'm, that we're going to address all of them, but I want to hear your questions. I have my own. Let's, uh, let's see what we come up with. Go ahead. So before uh, they eat from the apple, did they not have knowledge? Ah. What was their level of knowledge? Now, all of a sudden, they got knowledge. But what did they have before that? Excellent question. Good. Good. To what extent were they knowers? Excellent. Right. And the other question I would pose is, what's the big deal? I saw they were naked. So why did they have to get close? For what? Yeah. So they're naked. Okay. Uh, honestly, uh, my answer is for the schmata industry. For the garment district. I mean, you got to have, uh, how are you going to make a living? What do you mean? Ask my cousin Richie. He's in the industry. There you, so, uh, there you go. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Uh, what's, uh... Anyway, fine. So that's good, good, both very good questions. Let's keep, keep it coming. Mindy, I saw you had something. Okay. Um, I always wondered when God gave Adam a chance to explain, he placed blame on, you know, so Eve made me do. Yeah. He asked Eve a chance to explain. She said the snake made me do. Um, is there an, is there a reason God didn't go to the snake and say what you know? I give him gave the snake a chance to explain. I, I just did. Did God ever address the snake like uh, tell me why you did this or give give him a chance to to give a reason or an explanation? Did it just the buck stop there? That's a, I just always wondered if God ever gave the snake a chance to say something for himself. That's a fantastic question. That's a fantastic question. Good, good, good. So let's, I, I'm not giving answers right now. I'm, I'm collecting questions. Basil, go ahead. Um, why was God so restricted? Why didn't he want them to have knowledge to begin with? I love it. Excellent question. What's wrong with knowledge? <laughs> what's, what's wrong? What's the avla? What's the, what's the avera? What's the sin? Excellent question. Excellent. Beautiful. Um, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, why, why does... Um... Why does God say, uh, here the human has become like one of us? Expl exp explain your question. What, what's, what specifically, what's, which part are you asking about? Well, in, in, um, in the, the section of the, the last paragraph of text um, 1b, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. Yeah, yeah. Um, so God Almighty made coats of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And God Almighty said... Here the human has become like one of us, like to know good and bad. Um, so, so like like one of us, one of whom? Good. To be like a god. Right. Excellent. So that, that Adam and Eve had to had to remain uh, ignorant. And yeah. Simpletons. Excellent. Excellent. What's again? That's similar to the question. What's wrong with a little bit of knowledge? And what does it mean to become like God or not like God? What's what does God have to do with it? And you know, it seems like a good thing. Is it a bad thing? Is God feeling the competition? Excellent question. Good. Good, good, good. Uh, Dr. Maxi, go ahead. Thank you. So my question is sort of a follow-up to that. So first, it doesn't appear that the tree of life was prohibited from them partaking. And the second is, is it, it you, the inference is, is uh-oh, now that they have knowledge because they ate of the tree of knowledge, we got to put them out of the garden because they might think to eat from the tree of life and they'll live forever like that's a horrible thing. Yeah. It's like, hey, oh, God's like, oh, no, we got we got this tree. Quickly, hide the tree, move the people out. First of all, is it a game? What's what's going on here? Right. Excellent. Excellent. Good, excellent point. Stan, go ahead. The, uh, the, the prohibition against eating from the tree was given by God to Adam. Mm -hmm. It wasn't given to Eve. So the serpent approaches Eve 
who could only say, uh, uh, Adam said, God said. It right. was hearsay to Eve and not direct uh, evidence uh, to her. Uh, and the other thing, uh, another question I had is uh, uh, when God said, if you eat of the tree, uh, you will die. In, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And neither he nor Eve did die, in fact. Adam lived 930 years according to the Torah. That was not the day that they ate of the tree of knowledge. Excellent questions. Both excellent points. Why didn't God speak to Eve directly? Why, why create a scenario where she's only basing it off of hearsay, which sets up the error? One could say it sets it up. And the other one is, um, as you said, what's the deal with on the day that you eat it, you shall die, which doesn't seem to, to actually happen. Uh, who just, uh, okay, Adina Malka, go ahead. It seems to me that the problem wasn't so much whether you should eat of the tree of knowledge, whatever. It was a, a question of obedience. I said not to do it, don't do it. So you're saying maybe it's not so much about what they did, but that they did it. It wasn't the specific... Okay, good. Excellent. Okay, that's a good point. Let's continue. Vlad, go ahead. Um, trying to understand this. So is tree of life and tree of knowledge the same tree? It's not. Or there's two separate... Okay. Two, two trees. trees. Plot twist. Did, two did, trees. And did, did, did God then intend for humans uh, in the beginning to be immortal then? Yeah, that's what it seems like. That's what it seems like. But let's, you know, but let's leave it as a question. Why am I answering? Let's leave it as a question, right? Is, is then the natural state of human beings immortality? And if so, why does it change? How does it change? And what was the original plan? What's the new plan? Excellent. I always tell people, if you eat my potato kugel, it's like the tree of life. I'm just saying. I'm, ju it's, I'm just saying it's, it's almost that caliber. And if you've had my potato kugel, you actually know that I'm not kidding. I'm just, again, take me up on it. Game on. I'm ready to go head to head. No, no, not a competition, just like a kugel off. Okay, who else has got it? Let's, um, uh, let's do Karen. Karen, go ahead. So I've always wondered why, if God did not want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge, why was the tree of knowledge even there in the first place? What was the reason that the tree of knowledge was, was you know, revealed to Adam and Eve. Excellent question. Excellent, excellent, excellent question. In other words, if it wasn't supposed to be eaten, then why put it there? Why are we driving everyone crazy? What's the point? Right? Yes. Okay, good. That's correct. Ivan? If everything is preordained, then surely God was aware that eventually this would happen. Excellent. So then, so is this really catching God by surprise? And how do we reconcile God's uh, foreknowledge, so to speak, with maybe free choice, with this story? Okay, excellent. Good. Let's, let's hold the questions over here now. We have a ton of great questions. I have seven questions that I think are going to um, pretty strongly correlate to a lot of the questions that were asked. And we'll launch us in our discussion today. Again, just so you know, I, I know I told you the structure of the class. We'll tell the story. We'll ask the questions. Then we'll present the Kabbalah. Part of the goal, part of the objective in asking questions is to demolish what you thought you had. 
You with me on that? Part of the role of asking questions is to tear down the way that you thought you knew something. That's why in Judaism, we always welcome questions. In fact, the very celebration of our peoplehood and identity and freedom is a night, the Passover Seder, that's marked by questions. We encourage the child to ask questions. That's the only way things are learned. Discovery happens through questions. Why? Because I just, as I just mentioned, because a question challenges the status quo and challenges us to find something deeper than what we thought we had or what we, what we had. The same thing is true when it comes to the stories of the Torah. We're going, each class, we're going to rip apart the story. And, and I, I, I'm not using these words lightly, eviscerate the story and make it seem ridiculous until we present the deep wisdom of Torah, of Kabbalah, of Jewish philosophy to then reconstruct the story and make sense out of it. So here I go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some questions. And you can, you know, maybe you'll agree with all the questions. Maybe some of them you'll, you know, you'll push back on. Either way, these are seven questions that I have. Question number one. So how exactly does a tree give knowledge anyway? You ever found a tree that gave knowledge? <laughs> what kind of tree is that? <laughs> trees have, trees and fruit, there are lots of trees and lots of different types of fruit. But a tree that gives knowledge? What is that, hocus pocus, magic? How does that work? Is that like, um, you know, like a uh, magic, uh, magic pill? Like what, 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 what actually is going on there? Question number one. Question number two. Why was the tree of knowledge forbidden? And this is a question, this question was asked uh, by many of you before, by some of you before. Um, why was the tree forbidden? Does God not want us to enjoy the blessings of life? In other words, if knowledge is a blessing, and let's posit that it is, right, then how does it make sense that God would create something, create something good, and then say, but I don't want you to have it. What kind of God is it that tries to withhold goodness from his creations? That seems kind of cruel. Imagine a parent dangling something nice, something enticing in front of their children, saying, but you can't have it. It's not nice. So why is God withholding this from us? I want to share my screen with you. And just, I just want to demonstrate that this is actually not my question. This question, the second question, is actually from Ramban, Nachmanides. Uh, let's ask, Ivan, do you mind reading? You're right here on top of my screen. If you, if, if you will be so kind to unmute and to read text number two from Ramban, from Nachmanides. If the tree was so good to eat and so attractive as a source of wisdom, why did God withhold it from man? For God is good and beneficent and does not withhold goodness from those who live wholesomely. So Nachman is Ram, and that's, and that's part of the question. So he's asking, the question is, if God is good, and if wisdom is good, so why is God withholding it from human beings, from, from Adam and Eve? Why, why does God withhold this blessing? So that's question number two. Question number three. All right, question one is, how does a tree and, a fru and fruit impart wisdom? Question two, if it's good, why is God withholding it? Question three is, 
If knowledge is good, and again, that's kind of where, what we're assuming right now. If knowledge is good, then why is it a sin? How does it constitute a sin? That which is forbidden. Or, alternatively, how could it be the result of sin? In other words, it seems like Adam and Eve did get knowledge from the tree, from eating from the tree, and were fundamentally changed. And I'll ask you why I'm saying that in a moment. I want you to to tell me why I'm saying that. Um, And it seems like that change and that knowledge is a result of the sin, which means, so why is it connected with sin? And why is it the result of sin? Again, the question that I asked before was, if it's good, why is God, who's supposed to be nice, or we think is, would be nice, right? Why is God not wanting to give it? Share, share the blessings, number one. Number two, how could knowledge be a sin? And how could knowledge derive from sin? doesn't make any sense. How do I know, I want you to tell me, how do I know that they gain knowledge from the sin? What does the Torah tell us immediately following the sin? What happens? It says, the verse says, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. They knew, they knew that they were naked. That constitutes new knowledge, new information that they did not have prior. The Torah goes out of its way to say, prior to the sin, prior to eating from the tree, that they were not wearing clothes and they were not ashamed. In other words, they were unaware. Suddenly they eat from the tree and now they're aware. So we could ask a question, how do they become aware from eating from a tree? But I kind of asked that before, right? How does um, eating from a tree impart knowledge? But now my question is, how can we fathom that by committing a sin, that there's an elevation in consciousness? Rambam, the great Jewish physician, philosopher, astronomer, the great Maimonides, asks this question. Maimonides, let's read it inside. It's, it's really powerful the way he asks it. Um, let me share my screen with you once again. Take a look at text number three. Um, Jay, are you up to reading? Okay. Some years ago, a learned man asked me a great question. It would appear from a basic reading of the Torah's words that the human being was originally intended to be like the rest of the animal creation, without intelligence in his mind, and without his ability, without the ability to distinguish between good and bad. And that Adam's disobedience is what procured him that great perfection that is the uniqueness of the human being. It does appear strange that the punishment for his disobedience should be the elevation of man to a pinnacle of perfection that he did not previously have. This is like saying that a certain person was disobedient and extremely wicked. Wherefore, his nature was changed for the better, and he was placed as a star in the heavens. Maimonides says, and this is a question that he's writing, that somebody, he's reporting that somebody asked him. So it's a question, not necessarily his own question, but a question that he was asked. It doesn't make any sense, right? Before the sin, it appears that, that human beings are like another type of animal in that, look, I know animals have brains and they have a certain, a certain type of intelligence, but not to the extent of human intelligence, right? Animals are not writing novels. They're not, uh, you know, what, 
there's a certain level of human intelligence that animals don't possess. And it would seem that human beings, prior to the sin of the, of the tree of knowledge, of eating from the tree of knowledge, would have been in that category. But because of the sin, now they gain knowledge. Remember, they were naked and didn't know about it? How many bears, I'm going to ask, a, actually, it's a serious question. How many bears in the forest are looking around and being like, oh, I don't have any clothes on, and are quickly making clothing? Yeah? Are you with me on my question? And, and, and the answer is none ever. And now my question is, why not? Aren't they naked? We can see past the fur. Why not? What's the problem? Right? What's the problem? Why don't they put on clothing? Clearly, there's a certain awareness that they don't have. A self-awareness, a consciousness, a certain knowledge, using the language of, of the Torah here, that they don't possess. So Maimonides says, that he was asked, it seems like the human being, prior to the sin, was on the same level. You know, simple, base, very basic intellectually. But because of the sin, gains a sophisticated knowledge. Oh, so you sin and you gain? Sign me up, <laughs> right? What is this? What I'm kidding. Or not, right? But what's, what's going on here? You, you, you sin and therefore you get elevated. Since when? How does that make any sense? That's our third question. All right, I told you I have seven questions. I, the truth is, I have dozens of questions. And when you hear all the questions, the whole story doesn't make sense from beginning to end. What kind of tree gives knowledge? What kind of God doesn't want to give something good? What kind of human being would it have been without the sin? And does that mean that the sin elevated a human being? All right, that's what we're up to right now. Question number four. I saw some questions in the chat. Um, or some comments, I'm going to go through all seven questions and get back to the chat in, in just a moment. Question number four. But keep it coming. Keep it coming in the chat. Um, or you can unmute. Question number four. And this is a question that I want you to think about. Did Adam and Eve have free choice before the sin? A and it's kind of a catch-22. I'm putting, I'm putting you all in an impossible position to answer. First of all, you know, we weren't there, so we don't really know. But even if you're kind of you know, thinking about it, did Adam and Eve really have free choice? Well, again, so think about it. If we say they did have free choice, well, you need knowledge to have free choice. So if it's before they ate from the tree of knowledge, and they didn't have knowledge, so how are they going to choose? How do you choose between right and wrong if you don't have the intellectual capacity of choice? It's not a choice. And if they didn't have choice because they didn't have knowledge, then what was the purpose of, of humankind? If they did have choice... How could they have choice without the knowledge? It's kind of like the choice, sorry, the knowledge that was needed for the choice was in the very same tree that they chose to eat, that they, cho that they chose to eat. But how could they eat and choose if they didn't have the knowledge yet that was inside the tree? Are you with me on that? I don't mean to get too circular here, but it kind of is. There's um, one of the, the Magidim of the past one of the traveling, I'm just traveling Jewish preachers, so to speak. Um, he's known as the Magid of Dubno. The Magid of Dubno puts it like this. He says it's like the lock, the locked box parable. He says, imagine a tr imagine a treasure box filled with beautiful tr uh, treasure, and it's locked, but the key is also locked inside, <laughs> so you can't get in, right? It's locked with the key. So he says, 
It's in a similar way. The key to free choice is knowledge, or the key to making choices is knowledge. But the knowledge is in the fruit of the tree. So how did they choose to eat it if they didn't have the choice? If they didn't have the knowledge? Are you with me on this? All right. If yes, good. If not, we have another few questions. Don't worry about it. It's good. Here's the point. I'm going to tell you one, one answer, one perspective that will explain everything. Seven questions. It could be 70 questions. There's one nukuda, one point that answers everything. That's how you know, by the way, that it's a good point. If one point can answer a ton of questions, yeah, it's a good point. It's not my point, by the way. I'm just sharing it with you. Point from classic Jewish wisdom as well as Kabbalah. But we're not there yet. We're up to question number five. Question number five. Um, remember we talked about the serpent? And we all know the serpent, ooh, super sneaky. Super deceptive. Not really when you look at the verses. Pretty much everything the serpent said was correct. What does the serpent say? The serpent says, you're not going to die. They didn't die. <laughs> right? The serpent says, don't worry. Oh, the maggot of uh, Dubno. D-U-B-N-O in, uh, in English. Maggot of Dubno. Um, so getting back to the fifth question, number, I'm just responding to a question that I just saw pop up. Getting back to question number five. Um, the serpent said to Eve, don't worry, eat from the tree, you're not going to die. They didn't die. In fact, had they quickly snuck and, 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 and consumed the tree of life, the implication from the verses is, what, what would have happened? They would have lived forever. Are you with me on why I'm saying that? God's like, quickly get them out before they grab from the tree. That implies that if they did chap, chap arayin, Yiddish for grab it, right? They did quickly uh, take a hold of that fruit and eat it. They would have still lived forever. So the snake says, don't worry, you're not guaranteed to die. He was right. Or, I don't know, he, it was right. Um, the second point that the serpent says is, oh, eat from the tree, you'll become like God. After the sin, what does God say? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, what does is, what is the serpent say? Hold on one second, I'm, I'm rereading Ray for a second. What does the serpent say? What does God say, sorry? God says, uh-oh, human beings have become like me now. Right? Like us. Whatever that meant, right, with the plural. Which means that everything the snake, the, 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 the serpent said was actually true. And to prove my point or to support my assertion, I'm going to share with you, uh, not the lockbox parable, which I explained already, but figure 1.2 on page number 8. If you have a book, great. Either way, I have it up on the screen. Look at what the serpent says and what God says. The serpent said to the woman on the left side of the left box, No, die, you will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be as God, knowers of good and bad. Look what God says. Here the human being has become, here the human has become like one of us, to know good and bad. Boom! The serpent was right. And now perhaps he will send forth his hand, and he will take also from the tree of life, and he'll eat it and live forever. Boom! Eternal life was still possible. Are you with me? The serpent never lied. Now, if you think I am some sort of like fringe serpent apologist, if you think I'm running some sort of website like reclaimtheserpent.com, don't, I, right, I just made that up now. Um, don't worry, I, I'm not, but I am asking what I think is a very important question, which is wherein lies the deception of the serpent, it seems. Like the, ser like the serpent was actually being truthful. Question number six, um, 
what's with the fallout from the eating of the tree of knowledge? What's with the death that eventually does happen? Um, what's with the pain and the struggle and the suffering? What's with this? The, 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 the curse to Eve, the curse to Adam. What's going on with all this uh, hardship and difficulty? And how does that result from gaining knowledge? What's, what's, what's the connection? And finally, 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 like, in other words, is it connected with the knowledge or is it a random punishment? Remember, like, in school back in the day, I don't think they do this anymore. They used to have the kids write on the board, like, I will not. Remember that? I guess that's not so random because it's trying to instill the value that the, that the student transgressed or whatever. I don't know. Okay, yeah. let's, let's move off of that one. But my point is, are these, were these random uh, punishments or are, some, are, are they somehow inherently and conceptually connected? And finally, final question that I'm going to ask, and again, we're going to top, we're going to deal, this will affect also a lot of the other questions that you asked and we discussed before. Final question is, what is the role of shame, of nakedness, of clothing in this story? Why does the Torah decide to tell us, oh, by the way, before they were naked and were not ashamed, after they realized they were unclothed, they were shamed, and they started putting on clothes, and then later God himself even designed some clothes for them. What's, what's the deal with that? What's the deal with the clothing and the shame? All right, Ray, go ahead. Well, uh, this is a point of information. Yes. That the, the snake was called Arom, and nakedness is called Arom. Yes, excellent point. So what is it with the snake and the nakedness? Again, we have now also a connection between some of the other themes. Let me jump into the chat, and let me quickly take a look here and see what we have. Um, why was the Tree of Life not prohibited? Initially, so David's asking... Uh, in the chat, why was the tree of life not prohibited? I guess the assumption is initially there was, it wasn't a problem until the sin, and then it became problematic. The question that we could ask, which will be answered in today's class, is why does that change? Like, if it was on limits, in other words, available before, permitted before, why is it not permitted now, after? Um... Jerry writes, it was prohibited lest they eat of it and become like us and live forever, but that was only after the sin. Again, that's my point, which is what changed before and after the sin vis-a-vis -vis the tree of life? Um, who is the us the human, human has become like? Why does God write it in the plural? Good question. Um, right, and they didn't have knowledge of good and bad. Could they be blamed for, for eating the fruit, for eating from the tree? As I mentioned before, how, how do you have free choice without knowledge? Um, <laughs> I love this. Did they have needle and thread to make leaf clothes? Great question. Um, what, what skin of, was the coat that God made uh, for them? Okay, good. Um, Sarah asked, could knowledge of good and evil make them judgmental? And that, is not, and that is not what God wanted. Excellent, excellent idea. That knowing good and evil could make someone judgmental, and that's a value that God does not, does not like. Excellent, okay. Keep that in mind as we, as we continue with the Kabbalah. Um, Vlad is writing, why, the guard, why does the garden have a tree of life if the original plan was for Adam and Eve to be immortal? I'm, I'm assuming you meant immortal. Immortal or immoral? Because it really, really it could go both ways, by the way, with that. With that immortal. Uh, right, no, I figured, I figured. Um, right, so if it was immortality, then why do you need a tree of life? Right, what, just to, to, to like, like a double safety check, like you're gonna live forever, but just in case, also eat from the tree. Why do you need the tree? Or is it only in case you eat this one, quickly eat that one, and they didn't get the memo? Excellent question, good. Um, 
was man ever meant to live in the state of innocence? Only in the state of Georgia. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, in the state of innocence. Excellent question. All right. Good. 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 Hold the questions. Let's get to the Kabbalah. I'm going to take a deep breath. Oh, Karen. If there was no evil inclination, there would be no procreation. That also could be true. All right. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Um, okay. So, we're, at, we're up to the point. We've done Act 1, which is tell the story from the original. Act 2 was ask the questions, which we've done. Uh, now we're up to Act 3. And Act 3 is the Kabbalah. So, in the Kabbalah, I want to share with you one very simple point. And that is that we're making a big mistake in the story. There's a huge mistake. Like a very, very, very... A very... Um, a very critical mistake. And the mistake is we're reading it from the English. The tree wasn't the tree of knowledge. That's just what all the translations say. It doesn't say in the original that it was a tree of knowledge. What does it say? It was a tree of? Good and bad. No, it was a tree of? What's the eights, huh? What is it? What is it in the original? Eights in, in the Hebrew? Eights. Tree, no, the tree of life was the tree of life. It's the eights ha-da'at. The eights ha-da'at. It's the tree of da'at. Da'at is a Hebrew word that's translated as knowledge. But I'm here to tell you today that it's not knowledge. I'm going to drop some knowledge by saying it's not knowledge. And let me explain why. To understand this, we need to present a little Kabbalah. Now, I, would say, I, would, I, I, I know that some of you have studied this with me in the past, not to this level. Um, some of you perhaps have not yet you know, um, explored these ideas. I'm going to try to get everyone to the same place and explain what I mean. So in Kabbalah, in, Jew, in the Jewish mystical teachings, the human soul is described as possessing 10 unique powers or abilities. These are 10 soul manifestations, 10 soul abilities, 10 soul powers, 10 soul faculties. When I say soul, S-O-U-L. 10 powers of the soul. The Eser Kochot HaNefesh, which correspond perfectly, by the way, to the ten divine sefirot, the ten divine emanations that God uses to create the world. We do not have time tonight to get into a discussion of the mystical concepts, to get into a discussion of the mystical concept of the sefirot, the divine energies of creation. But here's um, uh, the, quick, the, the quick idea that I want to share is that the human soul possesses ten powers and abilities that perfectly mirror 10 manifestations of divine ability that God used to create the world. Which, by the way, parenthetically explains, in Genesis, when the Torah tells us that the human being was created in the divine image, and everyone asks, what kind of image? <laughs> the, the very bread and butter of Judaism is that God has no image. So what does it mean God's created, that the human being is created in God's image? What image? God has a non-image. So one of the answers is, especially in Kabbalah, this answer is given, is that the human being, the human soul, possesses the ten soul powers 
that mirror, the ten manifestations of energy that God uses to create the world. Not that God, in essence, is these ten manifestations of, of energy, but God uses them. Now, what are they? I'm going to share my screen with you once again, and let's look at it uh, in the book. So this is on page number 10. Boom, here we go. This is a map, a figure of the ten faculties of the human, of the human soul. Maybe I can make it a drop bigger and not... Yeah, I think we're okay. One, starting, it, it, the, way, the way you read it is from the right, right to left and then down. So, Chachma, Bina, Dat. You see that's um, different than the other ones in coloring, and that's the one we're going to focus on, of course. Then you have Chesed, Gvura, Teferet, Netzach, Yisod, and Malchut. We're not really going to cover any of them except for the first three. There are three intellectual abilities, three emotional abilities, and three behavioral abilities that the human being has that all come from the divine energy and mirror the divine. But let's focus on the first three powers of the soul. Chachma, Bina, sorry, Chachma, Bina, and Dat. And by the way, the acronym of Chachma, Bina, and Dat in Hebrew is Chabad. That's where the word Chabad comes from. Ch from Chachma, Be from Bina, D from Dat, Chabad. Okay, Chachma, Bina, Dat. What is Chachma, Bina, and Dat? Here is translated classically as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And again, I'm here to tell you that that's not what it is. It's not wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And I know it says it right here, but that's not what it is. So what is Chachma? What is Bina? And more importantly, what is Dat? Because remember, the tree in Hebrew is called the Eitz Hadat, the tree of Dat, the tree of this guy right here, right in the middle. This, uh, this white circle is the tree of Dat. What is Dat? All right, here we go. Chachma is... Our ability to think creatively. Bina is our ability to understand, to comprehend, to make sense of. Very different abilities. You have very creative minds. New ideas, innovation. Right? Very Chachma minds. And then you have Bina minds. They're not coming up with the big ideas. They're not coming up with the novel ideas. But they're, understand they're breaking things down. And understanding. You know, and uh, if you're doing some product development, you might have a creative team, and then you have the engineers that develop it, right, that make it work. So you have somebody that comes up with an idea, some chacham that comes up with an idea, like let's make a flying, uh, you know, toaster oven. Why? Because whatever. And then you have the, the people that have to build it and figure out how to make it work. So they're not necessarily the ones that are going to come up with a new idea, but they're the ones that are going to analyze it and make sense of it. That's Chachma and that's Bina. That's the right side and the left side. What's that? Because, the reason why I'm asking that, because once you have Bina, you fully understand a, co a concept and a topic. So what's that? What is knowledge? It's not knowledge. Here's what that is. And this is very important. This is the whole, the whole lesson tonight. This is it. That is our ability to connect and internalize and integrate with an idea. It's not to understand it. It's to connect with it. So I want to tell you a story. In fact, I'm going to read a story to you. Story is right here, text number four, 
and it's used as a parable. I'm going to read this one. An official-looking letter, adorned with stamps and seals, arrived at a small wayside inn somewhere in the backwoods of Russia. The illiterate innkeeper ran to find the local school teacher in order to enlist his assistance. As the teacher read the letter aloud, the innkeeper turned white, uttered a small cry, and fainted. For the letter contained shocking and tragic news for this simple, good-hearted man. His beloved father had passed away. You understand the story? Yeah? The story is, there's, an, there's two, two characters, the innkeeper and the teacher. The innkeeper can't read. The teacher can. The innkeeper gets a letter. He can't read the letter. He calls the teacher. The teacher reads the letter out loud, and the innkeeper faints. Why did he faint? Because the letter said that the innkeeper's father had passed away. That's the story. Are you with me? I'm going to ask you a klutz kasha. That means it's such a simple question that no one asks it. I'm going to ask it. Why does the innkeeper faint and not the teacher? Wait, one second. Didn't the teacher read it first? Doesn't the teacher have a stronger connection to the words, to the letters, to understand language? Right? Didn't it hit his brain first before it hit the innkeeper's brain? Why didn't the teacher faint? What's the answer? Dot. Because it wasn't relevant to him. It wasn't his father. It was information. In other words, in the information that the letter was sharing, did the teacher lack any information that the letter contained? It said that so-and-so passed away. Did he miss anything? He got it 100%. So why didn't he faint? Simple. Because it didn't mean anything to him. Now, I can't say it didn't mean anything to him. Of course, human beings are human beings and we're empathetic. But relative to the innkeeper, it didn't mean that to him, to the teacher. It wasn't his father. Bina is the ability to understand something completely. But it remains disconnected. That is where you and I is the ability, the ability, the power within us that we have to connect with something. I'll give you an example. You're watching TV and an ad comes on and talks about people starving across the world. And it explains the, the challenge and explains the situation. And then it asks for donations. Is there information that you're missing? No. Are you necessarily going to act on it? Also no. Why not? Does it speak to you? Do you feel it? Does it connect with you? Does it resonate? That is intellectual resonance. Intellectual connection. So let me give you three C words for Chachma, Bina, and Dat. Chachma is intellectual conception, new ideas. Bina is intellectual comprehension, understanding well. And Dat is intellectual connection. By the way, what's the word that's used in Torah um, as a euphemism for intimacy? It's Dat. Adam yoda et chava. And Adam knew, again that English translation which doesn't work, Adam New Eve. What does that mean? He connected. Connected with her. That is, first and foremost, the power of connection. It's not, under, it's not knowledge. What's knowledge? Knowledge doesn't mean anything. The tree of knowledge. 
What's knowledge? How does a tree have knowledge anyway? It's the tree, and, and I, 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 we have to advance it, but it's not knowledge. It's the tree of dat. Dat is connection and experience, which I'm going to explain what that means in the context of the tree in a moment. So, what's important to know is that when it comes to that, which is connection, there are pros and cons. And to illustrate this, once again, I'm going to share my screen. And I want you to weigh in on this little exercise that we're going to do. Okay, this is page 12. And question for discussion. Does our faculty of that, which again means connection, help us or hinder us in making important life decisions? Example number one, who can, be, who can better diagnose and treat an illness? An objective professional or a doctor who is a close friend and deeply cares about the patient? Let me explain the question. We're trying to give examples of somebody that has das, that and someone who does not have that. That means a connection, a deep connection. So is it better to have a doctor who is objective, in other words, not possessing that in this case, or is it beneficial to have a doctor who does have that dot connection, who is close to the patient? Question two, don't answer yet. I'm, we're going to discuss this in a moment. Who will do a better job at running a business? A higher genius with a PhD in business administration or a family member who is personally and emotionally invested in the family business? Someone without that or someone with that in this case? Question three, which would be a better judge in a criminal case, a computer that has fed all the relevant facts and algorithms, or a human judge with feelings of sympathy for the victim and outrage toward the criminal? Okay, so the question is, is that, here, here's really the question, is that a virtue? Is that an asset or a liability in life? Is having that good or not good? Weigh in. What do you think? You can pick whatever yes. example you want. Yes, which one? Yes. <laughs> Excellent, good answer. answer. It's a very good Jewish answer. I love it. That's a great answer. Yes, so let's talk about doctor, yeah? You want a doctor that has objectivity or a doctor that's close? I, listen, I never went to medical school, but I do know, I believe on the shows they always say, don't get too close to the patient or something like that because it's going to cloud your judgment. You ever hear that or watch that on ER or something? Yeah, or Grace Anatomy, and you could choose whichever one you want. I'm not, I'm not getting involved. House, whatever it is, right? Look, you ever heard that, though? Is there, though, nonetheless a value? By the way, doctors here, raise your hand. We have, we have several doctors with us. Okay. Um, yeah, so look. Does it help to be close or does it hinder to be close? As Dr. Maxey said, the answer is yes, right? It's good and it's not good. It's good to be objective. Maybe you'll miss something if you're too close. But it's good to be close because you, you, you also need to feel the closer you are sometimes. Maybe the more you're invested. Yeah. What about uh, running a business? Is it good to be run by the family? Sure. They care about it. Could family also, you know, overlook things and miss things? Sure. It's good to be objective. So it's a double, it's a, it's a, it's a not a double-edged sword. That's like negative both ways. It's a, 
It's davar v'hifucho. It has, it's, it's really a thing and it's opposite. It has both qualities. That is good and it's also not good. So here's where I'm going with this. When it comes to that, when it comes to that, we're in very, very um, tricky waters. Let's bring it back to the story of the tree of knowledge or what we call the tree of knowledge. It wasn't a tree of knowledge. It was a tree of that. You know why? Because Adam and Eve had seichel before. They had intelligence. The whole premise of all the questions, many of the questions that we asked before and we discussed was that they didn't have knowledge until they ate from the tree. The tree wasn't knowledge. As we know what the word knowledge. Are you, are you with me on what I'm saying right now? They had knowledge, knowledge before. They had seichel. They had intelligence before they ate. God created, created Adam and Eve as intelligent human beings. They had brains, they had human minds, they had intelligence. They weren't lacking in intelligence. That's why the Torah tells us before this that Adam named the animals. He was wise. That's why we, we know that God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, la'avda ulashamra, to, to guard it, to watch it. In other words, God tasked them with missions, gave them something to do. They had seichel. They had intelligence. The tree was not a tree of knowledge. The tree did not give them knowledge. The tree gave them that, and that is a completely different experience. The tree possessed something else by virtue of God designating it as such. The tree possessed that, which means the experience of tasting and experiencing, the experience of experiencing bad. You see, before this, Adam and Eve were innocent. And when I say innocent, here's what I mean. They knew about good and bad. They knew about right and wrong. God said, this is good and this is not good. Yes, sure, I get it. The lines are clearly drawn. This is right this is wrong. I get it. They had seichel. Yes, they had wisdom. They had intellect. They had intelligence. They knew this was right and they knew this was wrong. The things that were connected with their mission were right. The things that were disconnected from their mission or against their mission was wrong. They had fierce clarity. The rules of the game were also very straightforward. The rules were engage in what is Right? Don't engage in what's wrong. I want to give you an example. Imagine a video game. Imagine a video game. You're the main character. And before the game starts, you know, you have a screen that tells you the story. Here's the story of the game. So you know what you're doing. The story is, you're the good guy, and then there are all these bad guys, and you have to eliminate the bad guys and rescue a fellow good guy or the prince, whatever it is, you know, someone who's been captured by the bad guys. Great. Fantastic. You know, the, you know the context, you know the rules of the game, and you know the mission, right? Now the only question is, how successful will you, will you be at doing it? But imagine the following. The ultimate plot twist. Imagine if in the course of this video game, one of the bad guys says to you, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. 
and starts bringing you over to that side. Are you with me on this? Imagine a video game where the rules were set up in a certain way. There's good and there's bad, right? And you're on the good side and you, you know what you need to do. You need to get this and eliminate that. Very clear. But imagine mid-Dalmala, middle of nowhere. Suddenly you're like, you know what? I like the bad guys. I like the bad guys. I just Imagine one of the bad guys says, hey, listen, let's call a truce for tonight. Why don't you have a night out, night out on the town with us? See how the other side lives. And you're like, you know what? I mean, the game could, you know, the game is the game. Let's do it. Let's, you're in the game, right? You're like, yeah, let's do it. One night, party. And you know what? That night you have the time of your life and you're like, you know what? I'm a bad, I'm actually aligned with these guys. Or maybe you come out and now you're really confused. I don't, now you're not even sure. You know, what's good, what's bad? What's right, what's wrong? It's not clear anymore. Because you just got to know the bad guys. You just had an experience. It's no long, you're no longer detached. This is good, this is bad. You're no longer an, a machine, so to speak, that can just objectively see good is yes, bad is no. Suddenly, you've had an experience where what was bad felt good. What would that do to you? What would that do to the game? I, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not a gamer. I'm not you know, into games. But I, listen, I, I had a, um, a Game Boy back in the 80s. Right? Remember that? Those, yeah. And I played Super Mario Brothers. And I never, never did I ever see Mario, the main character, have an opportunity to join the dark side. Never. It, it never happened. But imagine if it could. Imagine a game that was so open-ended. Listen to this. A game that was so open-ended, so do whatever you want, that you start off in one role, but at any point, at any point, you can connect with the other side, and that could change everything. You know what that sounds like? Life. You know what else that sounds like? Adam and Eve. They had knowledge. That's not what the tree was. They had knowledge. You know what they didn't have? They didn't have experience. They never experienced sin until they did. And you know what? It tasted good. And it felt good. And that was it. That was it. You and I know this. You and I know this. Every human being that's ever walked this planet has had the experience of having lines that they would never cross until they crossed it. And once you cross that line, it's not a line. Don't worry, this is not a, a confessional moment, so it's okay. But we all know this, right? We all know this. Lines that you had, clarity that you had, that at some point became muddied because we connected with the other side of the line. It happens. That's what life is. And the first time it happened was with the tree of experience of good and evil. Not the tree of knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge is for amateurs. <laughs> knowledge is, they already had knowledge. It's not the tree of knowledge. 
That's a mistranslation. Simply whoever translated the Torah into English or whatever language, maybe it's another language, is also similar to knowledge. Whoever translated didn't know what that means. I guess they didn't study Kabbalah. That is not knowledge. Bina, Bina, you already know it. That is not knowledge. That is connection and experience. It's the tree of experience. This tree gave them a taste of the forbidden. The tree was forbidden. Why was it forbidden? What made it forbidden? God said, I'm, get, I'm putting you in a garden, and this is good, or this is, this is right, and this is wrong. That's it. God's allowed to do that. I want you to engage in this and disengage from that. And, and from an objective perspective, sure, sounds, sounds fine. But what happens when you taste from it, and it tastes good from the forbidden fruit, and it tastes good? Innocence lost. That's why it's the tree of that of good and evil, of, of good and bad. Because suddenly, what's good and what's bad? What's good is bad, and maybe what's bad is good, right? Well, who, who are the good guys anymore? What's, what, what's good? Who defines good? God defines good, but you know what? That also is pretty good. Are you with me on this? So far, yes? Okay. This point answers all the questions of the story. And we're going to go through them one at a time. But you should know that you already have all of the answers. This one point of what is that and what was that tree and what was that experience. The experience was an experience, by the way. right? Knowing that answers everything. Um, I saw Karen just wrote in the chat. Let me take a quick look at the chat. Um, was this a test? Yes, it was a test. Why did God protect it? Um, yeah. Why didn't God protect the tree of knowledge? Uh, the Eitzadat. Why didn't he make sure that Adam and Eve didn't eat from it? Well, the whole point was that that possibility exists. Right? If not for that possibility, then there was really no point for human beings to exist. The whole point was to have this challenge. And we <laughs> certainly went for it. We went all the way. And we're still going for it. Karen writes, maybe the other side doesn't feel good, but it can be an experience with the bad guy that breeds empathy. Yeah. But it also says that Eve saw that it was good and lusty for the eyes. Remember that verse? It says it was good and lusty for the eyes. There's no implication that says that she ate and she's like, ridiculous. I wasted my time. It doesn't say that. The implication is that she tasted it and Adam tasted it and it was actually amazing. And it's like, you know what? God said no, but I say yes. It's actually very good. So how do you, what, once, once, that's, um, once that's a reality, how do you go back to a purely innocent state of, of not having the experience of knowing what the other side's like? Once you've tasted the forbidden fruit, so to speak, how do you untaste it? How do you not know it anymore or not experience anymore? You can't. All right. With this, all the questions are answered. Perfect. We're good with timing. So let's go through the questions one by one. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did have free choice. For sure they had free choice. I, I'm, I'm going to answer those as we go through. They had knowledge, as we know knowledge. 
They had intelligence. They had free choice. Of course they had free choice. What didn't they have? The subjectivity of knowing it from the inside that would make it much harder than before. Are you with me on that? What they didn't have is the emotional connection to the negative. At first, they just knew this was good, this is bad. But now that they've tasted it, oh, it's very good. Now everything's, everything's confused. Now, they had free choice before, but now the free choice, much harder. All right, let's go through all the questions. Question number one, how does eating a fruit of a tree impart knowledge? Magic, hocus pocus? No, doesn't impart knowledge. Who's that imparts knowledge? What it imparts is a sense of, oh, what they told me is no good actually tastes good. Are you with me on that? It wasn't magic. It's called life. You know, as a child, you might think that if somebody tells you that it's you know, not okay to do something, that means that maybe it doesn't feel good or it's going to be a completely miserable experience. And then at some other point in life, we learn that that's not always the case, right? Something may be off limits. Something may not be good, but it feels good, right? There's no kid. Yes? Yeah. Present company obviously excluded, right? This is what, what, the, what, what happens out there. Don't worry, it's a safe space anyway. Yeah, so, so that's, so, so question, again, question number one, how does the tree impart knowledge? It doesn't. Doesn't. They had knowledge. It imparts that, an experience. What's the experience? Eating from the tree. It's not magic. It is what it is. So what happens when you eat from the tree and you enjoy it? That's what happens. You eat from the tree and you enjoy it. That's exactly what happened. Yes, if it feels good, it must be good. Or, even worse, it feels good, so I think it's good, but I'm told that it's not good. I don't know what's, what's good or not good anymore. That's where we are. That's the human condition post-sin. Right? Is everything is mixed up and everything is confused. Um, why was the tree forbidden initially? Well, as I said, that's question, I'm going through the question. Question number two is, why was the tree forbidden? Like, what's wrong with, uh, with knowledge? Well, nothing's wrong with knowledge. They had knowledge. They had intelligence. What God wanted them to stay away from is having that experience and getting confused. God wanted nothing more than for them to remain innocent. It's kind of like parents. Think about parents and children, right? You want your child, which parent wants the child to get involved in something negative that is, feels good, but it's not right and it's dangerous? Who would want that? You tell your, ch your children, do this stuff and don't do that stuff. You don't say, do, th do that stuff and try it out. Like, that's not, it's not a thing that we tell our kids. And that's what God was saying to Adam and Eve. That's what God said to the first human beings. Right, his kinderlach, his kids. God says, this is good, or this is, not even good, right? this is truth, or this is right, this is wrong. Stay away from wrong. Engage in what's right. Like anyone would say to, to, to someone under their tutelage. God didn't want them to eat from the tree because he knew that if they ate from the tree, they would like it. They would say, so, if I like it, why is it so bad? All right. 
Next, next question. Question number two. Um, if knowledge is good, then why is it a sin or the result of a sin? Remember Maimonides asked the question, how could the human being be rewarded for sin? Like, human being before was not intelligent. And then suddenly becomes intelligent through sin. How does sin lead to reward? We asked before, Maimonides asked. Again, the whole premise of the question is false. The human being, unlike the person that asked Maimonides, who the premise of which the question was that wasn't, weren't human beings like animals, the answer is no, they weren't. Human beings had human intelligence from the beginning. That's the big mistake of the premise of the question. By the way, Maimonides himself writes this answer that I'm telling you. This is not me or Kabbalah answering Maimonides or the question that he was asked. Maimonides himself writes this. The question is built on a faulty premise. Adam and Eve had human intelligence from the beginning. What did they lack? They lacked experience of the negative. Is that a bad thing? No. That's, a, that's an innocent thing. They had innocence. They, they were lacking a lack of innocence. Innocence lost or tarnished. They didn't have that. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. So what did they gain? They gained confusion. Is that a step forward or a step backwards? What did they gain? They didn't gain knowledge. They gained confusion. Because they had clarity. Naivete, you might want to call it. But they had clarity. This is right. This is wrong. And now, it's no longer right or wrong. It's good or bad. It might be wrong, but it feels good. It might be right, but it feels bad. You understand what's going on here? Maimonides says originally the world was divided into two categories. Now there's four. The two categories were right and wrong. Or in the words of Maimonides, truth and false. Falsehood. That which is true and that which is not true. Now, whoa, we got a, another way to slice things. It's not about true or false. It's not about right or wrong. It's about what feels good or what feels bad. It's a mitzvah. Yeah, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It's terrible, but it feels great. You see what's going on here? Is that a step up? Is that advancing the human condition? My mind says, no, it's not. So what, what did the human being, what did Adam and Eve gain? Confusion. So the question is, oh, they profited off of sin. You call that profit? I call that confusion. It's a step back. Next, question four. Did Adam and Eve have free choice before the sin? Yes. Of course they did. They had wisdom. They had intelligence. They were told what was right. They, told, they were told what was wrong. And they absolutely had free choice. If they didn't have free choice, how would they eat from the tree? We asked that before. Well, obviously, they, <laughs> it's a simple answer. They had free choice, right? So what's the difference before and after? The difference is before, they didn't have an inner temptation to say, I know this is good. It was only the serpent on the outside that said, Try it, you might like it. Are you with me on that distinction before and after? Before they were innocent, they had never tasted the forbidden fruit. So they only knew it from God. This is right, this is wrong, this is permitted, this is prohibited. All right. So they weren't drawn toward the forbidden. If it's, not, if it's off limits, it's off limits. Very simple. Like you're playing a video game and you're the good guy and those are the bad guys. Those are the rules of the game. Start, go, go. 
You got, yeah, go, now go. All right, I'm going to eliminate the bad guys and save, and save the good guys. It's obvious. Until a serpent comes along and says, psst, come over here. Got something to tell you. Come, come. There's no inner voice that says, let's explore. There's no inner voice that says, maybe what I was told is not correct. You don't question it. Why would you question it? There, are you with me on what I'm saying right now? You're playing a game. I, I, I hate to even bring up this type of game, but that's what I'm picturing in my head. One of those games where you're like shooting the bad guys. Okay, whatever. I don't know. I'm not commenting on video games and violence. I'm just saying. It's obvious if you're the good guy, you're going to eliminate the bad guys and save all the good guys. That's it. Those are the rules. Till a serpent comes along and says, I got some news for you. Try this. You might like it. And once, and once it's tried and liked, no turning back. So there was free choice before. But the temptation, listen to this, didn't come from within. Because how did they know to be tempted? Yes? You with me on that? That's why it came from an external source, the serpent. Post-sin, where's the serpent? So to speak, where's the serpent? Inside. We don't need a serpent on the outside. We know it. We know it. We know it tastes good. Now the temptation. Now, now there's free choice and the two options amped up. It's even more difficult. Question. Yes. Meir or Dasi, go ahead. Um, so I, I feel like um, Eve must have still felt some emotional connection because if she truly didn't feel something when the snake came to her, wouldn't she just have been like, well, that's nice and like gone and done something else? Like, wouldn't yeah. it still he was still speaking to like something with yeah. her. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, for sure. No, she would have said that. And she said, that's nice, thank you very much, but it's not, it's not something that I do. I don't do that. And the snake's like, but there's, nothing, there's actually nothing wrong with it. It's actually to your benefit. She was intrigued, she wasn't tempted. She, wasn't, she, was, she was convinced, she wasn't, she wasn't um, there was no desire inside for that fruit, for that, for that forbidden fruit. She was convinced by the serpent that there's nothing wrong with it. That it's, uh, it must have been like, um, I think Jerry mentioned before, maybe it was some sort of miscommunication that's even on the ban list. Something akin to that. But the potential for free choice was there. Which means there's a potential to choose against. But the desire did not originate from inside. The curiosity came from the outside and it was enough to convince her. Lesson number, sorry, question number six. Let's wrap this up. Question, hold on, let me make sure. No, um, sorry, question five. Where, what about the deception of the serpent? The serpent, everything the serpent said was right. You're going to become like God, and God said you're going to become like me. Okay, this is a little bit more involved. I'm going to do this very quickly. If it, if it works, it works. If it does not 100%, you're still getting the main idea. God also has dot. But God's dot is different than human dot. Let me explain. Our dot, once we know something, we can't unknow it. Once it's part of us, we can't take it out from us. Once you hear something, you can't unhear it. However, with God, God is within and without at the same time. So God can experience something or know the experience from within and still remain objective from without. Why? Because God is not subject to either or. Are you with me on this? 
God transcends the binary construct of reality, and therefore human beings, either you don't know it or you do know it. God could know it and not know it at the same time. Therefore, God can, I hate using that word no even, God can dat, if you will, God can experience, if you will, so to speak, good and bad, and still remain above it. Whereas the human being, once the human being tastes bad, that's it, there's no going back. There's no not experiencing it. So that's where the, the snake lied, the serpent lied. The serpent said, you'll be like God. God knows it. God has that dot. You should also. But God can have that dot and it not mess him up. Are you with me on what I just said? God can have the dot of evil from the inside and not succumb or be subjected to that evil. Yes? Ish? Sort of? Maybe? All right, let's move on. You, we, I, we, I can... I want to wrap this up, and then we can get back to this one. Um, next, sixth question. Uh, why does eating the tree of knowledge cause death, pain, and struggle? Simple. You know, once Adam and Eve eat from this tree, they become confused, and the truth is everything in creation becomes confused because now everything could be good or could be bad, and it's, it's, everything's ambiguous. There's no absolutes anymore. And the, li the lines, the, the strict lines that had been drawn are now blurred between what's good and bad and right and wrong. And so now everything in the world is a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. And that means that the human being can no longer live forever. Because the human being has a trace of negative inside. And really everything has a trace of negative inside. So if there is immortality, it would grant immortality also to the negative, to the evil, to the bad. And God does not want the, the negative, the evil, to have immortality. When it's clear this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, when there's clarity, then the positive and the truth can live forever and the other side can go away. But if everything is mixed together, so now what? Now nothing can live, nothing of created beings can live forever. And the key to that idea is that the, the mixture, the confusion that happens in the human psyche affects the rest of reality because the human being is the, is the, core, of, the core of reality. Um, finally, oh, and that's what, that's what causes death and pain and struggle for, for, for Eve and for Adam and for their descendants because life is now complicated. Life was meant to be simple, I don't know, simple, straightforward. Now it's no longer simple or straightforward. Now it's complicated. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, we don't even know. Like, I thought it was good, but then it feels bad, and I thought it was bad, but it feels good. That's it. We're at a loss sometimes. How many times have you had a moral dilemma where you weren't sure which was the right approach? Because there were pros and cons of each. Welcome to the world, pose dot. Because it's confusing. It's confusing. You don't have the clear lines. And so now life is born of struggle, and it ends in struggle, and in the middle there's struggle. And that's the nature of uh, the consequences of their actions. Life, in short, is difficult. Life is difficult. They made it difficult. They tasted from the forbidden fruit. They liked it. All right, now it's complicated. It's complicated. It didn't have to be, but it is. Now it is. Finally, what's the role of nakedness, shame, and clothing in the story? Very simple. It's not that Adam and Eve were like the bears. The bears. They didn't, sorry, a little reference there. It's not like they didn't know you know, it's not like they didn't realize they were like unintelligent, like animals. They knew. They knew. They didn't have dot. 
They didn't feel it. So th- their bodies, their bodies were good. There wasn't anything, nothing was, uh, was negative. There was nothing, nothing um, you know, negative or, or, or shameful about the body. It was just a body, human body, created for a purpose. God created the body. And every organ has a purpose, right? The head has a purpose, the eyes have a purpose, the arms have a purpose, and the reproductive organs have a purpose. But suddenly now, it's not so simple anymore. Suddenly now, there's another layer to it. It's complicated, a layer of complication. And now, suddenly, with this ambiguity, with this complication of what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, and it feels good, but is it right? Now that makes it complicated. And which area of life is more difficult and more complicated than, than sex and sexuality? And so they look at themselves and they're like, yeah, maybe we should cover up. Maybe we should cover up. It's not that they lacked intelligence before. It's they lacked, they, they lacked experience. Not all experience is good. Experience, listen, experience is experience. It's not always good. Listen, it's, uh, it is what it is because we're here now and that's where we are. Um, but hopefully this helps explain the story. So what's the moral of the story? Now that we understand what that is, and again, that's the whole, the whole key of this is understanding what was this Eitz Hadat, the tree of Dat. It's not a tree of knowledge. I mean, you can use that word if you want, but you and I should know <laughs> we should connect with what it really is. It's tree of experience. So now we can take a few t- uh, some takeaways. Number one, the importance of holding on to innocence. Right? We shouldn't look to give ourselves more challenges in life. We have enough already. Right? So it's good to kind of keep things clear. It's not always possible. And sometimes, well, almost always, life happens. Nonetheless, the importance of clarity. Number two, as I mentioned in the course of today's class, the reality is that post-sin, life is complicated. And it's, it's impo- it's, according to Kabbalah, it's essentially impossible to find good that doesn't have a little bit of bad in it and bad that doesn't have good. And I did, we didn't read all the text. I think we probably read about half of the text of this lesson. The main lesson. There's an appendix also, but there are about 10 texts. I think we read about five of them. You, can, you all have the PDF, or if you need it, I can send it to you. You can peruse the other texts. You'll see pretty much what I told you outside is written inside in the text. But one thing that's clear from Kabbalah is that post-sin, the world itself is now mixed. Good has bad, bad has good which tells us the following, very important. Often we think that the way we think is right and good, and the way the other one thinks is wrong and bad. Lesson from this lesson, from this class is, it's not so simple, right? Even our ideas are not perfect, and even our great ideas and philosophies are not perfect, and even their terrible philosophies are not completely terrible, right? And I say that, of course, um, the most basic level, and it's beyond that. Number, uh, that's, I think, the second lesson. Number three. Number three is we need to be careful when judging someone else. Um, as I just said, in a post-tree of knowledge or that world, there's no good without bad, no bad without good. 
So let's temper expectations. In other words, understand that somebody, no one's going to be perfect. Even the most righteous person is going to have something negative. And even a negative person is going to have something positive. So this is not about ideas, which I just mentioned before, about philosophies or ideologies. This is about people. Oftentimes, our society today, we love to elevate people to idol status and then to bring them crashing down to the, to the ground and to destroy them. Right? So somebody does something right, they're amazing, they do something wrong, they're terrible. Like very extreme. And I don't know why we like to play this game, but it's not real life. And it's not the life, it's not what we learn from Kabbalah. What we learn from Kabbalah from tonight is life is complicated, humans are complicated, the world is complicated. So yeah, you can have somebody that does amazing good and also does bad. Does that wipe away their accomplishments? I, I, I don't have anyone specific in mind. I'm just saying that we have to, we have to be more nuanced about life. And it starts from looking within and be, having an honest assessment of ourselves. Do all of our accomplishments go out the window because of our failings? Conversely, um, because of our failings, should we not strive to do something positive? It works both ways, so we should be careful. And finally, number four, let's not get too vexed or frustrated by the complexities of life. Life is complicated. Life is ambiguous, right? It's hard to tell sometimes the difference between right and wrong and good and bad, but that's what we're here for. And truth be told, I haven't mentioned this yet. I'll mention this right at the end because we're going to conclude right now. The truth is, life after the sin is much more rich and has a much greater potential than life before. Because in an environment that's sterile, where good and bad, right and wrong are isolated, so to speak, and good is being chosen and bad is being, being avoided, there's only so much risk and only so much reward. But when the stakes are that much higher, when good and bad are not even clear, and when, when it, it is clear, there's still a temptation for bad because we know it from the inside, that raises the risk and that raises the reward. The Kabbalists teach us that the light that is produced by our actions post-sin are much greater. The light that's produced is much greater than any light that Adam and Eve could have produced in that pre-sin state. So, let's celebrate the opportunity we have in this state of imperfection to do something amazing. May this week be a week of spiritual clarity, and may we continue to bring light into the world. I thank you. I thank you for being here with me tonight, for taking the time to spend on this Tuesday evening, <coughs> together with me, to study some Torah. Um, thank you. And that concludes Lesson 1. Next week, Lesson 2. Quick preview. Noah's Ark. You know the story, but trust me, you don't know the story. You haven't heard it. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you think Noah's Ark is about Noah, a boat, and some animals, there's a lot more at stake. It sounds out there. It sounds like, a, again, a Baba Misa fairy tale. Join me next week as we peel back the layers and discover the Kabbalah behind the Ark. All right, that's it for Lesson 1. I'm, I'll stay on for the next few minutes, 5-10 minutes, to answer any questions. I thank you. That's an applause for you guys. I thank you for joining me. And I'm here in the chat. Oh, I should mention... Let me think. Hold on one second. Like I said, if you didn't get the book yet... Stay tuned. You should get a book. If you just tried out tonight's class and you're not signed up, I hope you'll join us by 
joining the rest of the sessions. Um, we're doing an event, I really should mention this, next Thursday night, November 5th, an event with um, Kenneth Feinberg, who's an attorney from Washington, D.C. The title of the event is Putting a Price on Life. Kenneth Feinberg is a special master uh, for the 9-11 uh, Victim Com Compensation Fund, and he's worked with governments and corporations in essentially putting a price on life and then paying out. So he's going to speak from a Jewish perspective. How do, you, how do you put a price on life, and how does that work? And he'll speak personal stories and his work and his Jewish influences. He's amazing, and it's a real treat. <laughs> it's a real treasure that we're going to have the opportunity to, uh, to connect with them. You can find out more information and sign up for the event um, on IntownJewishAcademy.org. Um, I don't know the direct link for it, but just go to the website, IntownJewishAcademy.org. It should be there on the homepage. Just look for the yellow design with some price tags on it, putting a price on life, and join me. And, and please help spread the word. He's, uh, he's truly special. All right. Oh, and by the way, if you know anybody that, like, that would like this class that you just took, feel free to invite them and to, uh, to join the class. I'd love for... Uh, uh, for more folks to, to jump on. All right, <coughs> let me look at the chat. Let's see what we got. Um, okay, yes, the question is, <coughs> thank you for the thank yous. The class, I am recording the Zoom. I will make it available for people that are part of this class. Um, I'll email everybody in the next day or two with the recording, audio, and video. Let's see. Um, hmm. So somebody wrote to me, David wrote to me, Maybe Adam knew that to really connect with God, <coughs> he had to taste the other side. It's possible. It's possible. In other words, was this somehow intentional? Yes. It's possible. Who knows? Some, definitely something to keep in mind. So it's a, it's a good idea. Anybody want a, a question, a comment? Feel free to unmute or to write in the chat. Or just say hi. Yes, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, so... Um... What doesn't make sense to me, and um, um, everything doesn't always have to make sense, but um, if God put the, uh, 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 the tree of knowledge, the tree of connection, in the center of Gan Eden, and didn't expect, I, I, don't, I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me that he didn't expect uh, that this wasn't a test and that he didn't expect uh, uh, Adam or Eve to, uh, to taste from, from the, the, the tree of knowledge. And that, that passage that I asked about, I looked it up. I mean, it, it wasn't complete. It was man has become, and God said, man has become like one of us, aware of good and evil, and now he may extend his hand and, and take right. from the tree, the tree of, of life. life. You're, so you're, that, that, that denotes a, 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 an expectation of an ongoing and, and continuing uh, um, uh, a manifestation of, of this, of this, this uh, a quest to understand good and evil, which, which um, um, harkens toward a lot of other concepts, as you said, uh, that, are, that are very complex and complicated, <clears throat> but it would seem to be the root of, of those concepts, and there's a heck of a lot more to this yeah. than we're discussing here. I will, I will tell you this. I didn't want to mention it in the main class. Now this is like the after party, kind of. So, like, I mean, it's still recording, but it's kind of like, like semi-off the record. In Kabbalah, it says clearly that it was set up. 
So that's that's. That's what I think. I I I. And, it's and there's, there's a direct line. Everything was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was it was it was perfection. There was nothing. There was no lack of, yeah. of want for anything. And I don't believe it was ever Hashem's intention that that they should not know what it was like to to, to have a lack. The 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 implication. The implication from Kabbalah and even from other verses in Scripture and even from the Medrash is that God intended, in fact, Adam says to God, the Medrash says that Adam said to God at some point, hold on, your Torah, which was written as the blueprint of creation before creation, the Torah talks about death, what to do in the eventuality of death and, and, and impurity that comes as a result of death. You set me up. And you know what the Medrash says? God was quiet. God didn't answer. There's a direct line between between the Garden of Eden and the, and the uh, wandering um, in in the desert uh, and the manna from heaven because the manna was was given to our people they they, they didn't lack for anything uh, they they had everything and just the same way as in the in the Garden of Eden but yet every single time there was an opportunity. For our our ancestors to doubt God, yeah, uh, we we did. And Listen, we when, kvetch, when we, we kvetch now also. We complain. So we, do, we know how to do when it. We, <laughs> when we when we reached the the when we reached the promised land, the holy land, what did we have to do? I mean, you know, we 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 had to fight for everything, and it wasn't instantaneous. Yeah. What did it take? Seven years, or it took about fourteen years. Seven years of battle years. and seven years of seven years of fighting and seven years of settling. Yep. For, for the for the same express person purpose uh, that 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 had its roots in, in the Garden of Eden. Yep. Excellent. Rabbi. Good. Yes, Ray. Go ahead. Um. So if God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree, why didn't He protect it like He protected the Garden of Eden once they were out? This, yeah, good, good question. Excellent question. If, if he could put a revolving blade in front of the tree of life, why didn't he do the same for the tree of knowledge? The simple answer is because then it wouldn't be a choice. And then what would the point be? If, 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 if there's only one choice, God already had that. It's called heaven and it's called angels. I mean, if you can't choose bad and you can only choose good and there's only one choice available, nishkain choice, which is Yiddish for there's no choice. Right? There's no choice. And if there's no choice, then what are you doing? You're just wasting time. So God created a choice. But what happens with that choice is not just a choice. It's an experience. And that's where we went with the lesson. So God doesn't put the revolving blade of doom around the tree of knowledge because that would take away from the choice. Now, if you want to get to what we were just talking about on a deeper level... It was actually meant to be even more of an opening for that to happen, to lead to the greater light that comes from the darkness. But again, that's a, a deeper concept than the one that we discussed in the main class. That will, that's, uh, that's for the after party, like I said. Um, well, hope that, that helps. answers my question, though, because my question is, okay, so you wanted to have a choice. All right, I get that. So why did you put the tree in the middle of Ghana? Why didn't you stick it in some far corner? And you really had to have a plan and be very determined yeah. to go and find the tree and eat from it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So if we look back at the verses, it's interesting. If we look back at the verses, I'm going to open up my copy. It actually says that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And then there was the tree of knowledge of good and bad. 
So it's actually the tree of life that is put in the center, and the tree of knowledge is the one that's not given a location. And it's interesting because I recently heard a, a, an insight into that. Why is one given a location and one not? And I think the answer is, th that I heard is that the tree of life that you have to discover and embrace at the core, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that you can find anywhere. <laughs> that's available <laughs> wherever, um, wherever knowledge is to be, whatever, wherever that is to be found. <laughs> The 7-Eleven exists. Exactly, so to speak. It's that, that is, you don't have to go to the center. You can find that ex those experiences everywhere. Yeah. But it's actually the, op the, other, the other way around with the trees. Um, okay. But it still leads to a very interesting insight. R R R yes. R Rabbi. Yes, Stan. Uh, in the, uh, uh, it, it, it doesn't say, uh, uh, God doesn't say to Adam, if you eat mm. uh, of, of the uh, of, of the fruit, you will uh, surely die. He says, "When?" Yeah, yeah. I believe that's the translation. Because on the day you eat of it, die, you will die. Yes, uh, it's a prediction. Yes, good point. It's like what Richard said. He's calling it. He's saying, "When you eat it, you're gonna die." I know it's gonna happen. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. Why does he use? Why does the Torah use the word "die" twice? Excellent. It, it, the simple answer is, the simple answer is, it means it's definitely going to happen. Oh, I didn't answer the question that we raised before. Well, it wasn't one of my seven, but the question that, we, that somebody asked is, well, they didn't die on that day, so what's going on? The answer is they didn't have to die on that day. Although it says, on the day you eat of it, die, you shall die. It doesn't mean like full death. It means death begins. Once, that, once the mixture of good and evil happens, good and bad happens, that's the beginning of the end. That has to be the beginning of the end, or else evil will have immortality, and that can't be in God's world. So why, but your, your question is, why does it say it twice? The simple answer is to create a sense, to evoke a sense of certainty and assuredness. It's definitely, you're definitely going to die if you eat from this tree. On a deeper level, you might say, there's a physical death and a spiritual death, right? There's um, the physical mortality, but also on a level there's a spiritual loss of innocence, which is on some level a death of what was. If you want to think of death in a more, I don't know, a more um, uh, non-literal, you know, metaphorical way, it's death is the loss of what was. By the way, I, I gave the example in the middle of the class about toward the end about parents and children, how parents would love nothing more and to be able to put their kids in a safe environment and say, this is good, and do this stuff, stay away from that stuff, and would love if that were the case. And the children, oh, they love running into danger. But we were that child once, and you and I know that that's where the growth happens. That's where the growth happens. For better or for worse, that's the stuff of life. It started with Adam and Eve. It started with Adam and Eve. Today's class was really, the point was not... The direct point was not about the upside of sin. That maybe is another class, but it touches on that point. And as we've been kind of discussing it at this, you know, post-class convo. Um, but yeah. Okay. What else? What else? What else you got? I have two questions. Yes. Okay. Question one. Since the tree of life wasn't forbidden, why didn't they eat from it? Like just because they could. Excellent question. And especially I, why didn't they eat from it after they ate from the tree of yes. 
Excellent question. So um, I know there are commentaries on that. I cannot recall in the, at the moment why didn't they eat from it before. Um, why didn't they eat after it? It seems like they were busy hiding and feeling ashamed. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, on, on a very, I'm, I'm, that's not a Kabbalistic answer. I'm giving you a very pragmatic answer. They were ashamed and embarrassed. Adam was hiding, and God's like, where are you? Like, what, are you hiding from me? doesn't really work. They were hiding from themselves, really, first and foremost. To cover up the body was not for anyone else. It was just them. They were, I'm sure they were used to each other, you know, not wearing clothes. It wasn't about the other, right? It was about themselves. They were self-conscious. They were uncomfortable in their own skin. And where does that discomfort come from? That comes from a sense of shame, of liking what we know we shouldn't like. That's it. And that is introduced in the human psyche at this point. That's the story. That's tonight's story. Tonight's story is the introduction of um, experience, tasting the forbidden fruit, shame, and all of the above. Ray. Oh, sorry. Um, did you, was that, was, those are the two questions, right? Well, no, that was question one. Oh, okay, good. Um, question two. So I've heard that when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, God talked to the women first because God didn't want the same mistake to happen where, like, God had talked to Adam and then Adam told Chava. Yeah. Like, God talked straight to the women. Right. So does that mean that God learned? Can God learn? <laughs> good question. I'll ask you another question. God created human beings and then said, not working out, we got to bring a flood. And it's next week's class, right? Does that mean that God didn't realize or change his mind? The good, it's an excellent question. I know I'm not answering it, but we find this throughout Torah, what appears to be God learning or correcting or adjusting, pivoting. Does God pivot? Does that imply a lack of knowledge, a lack of foreknowledge, a lack of um, anticipation of anticipating what's going to be? An inflection point. An inflection point. Does, God, does that imply that God is learning on the job? Does that take away from God's perfection? It's a good question. So all of these are good questions. The, the short answer is no. We believe, at least classic Jewish thought, philosophy, and Kabbalah is that God is the ultimate imperfection, and anything that takes away from that perfection, um, we would try to stay away from. We would say that the Torah speaks in the language of human beings so that when there is an adjustment... The Torah associates with it um, human motives or so-called human motives. Like a person who, if they created something and destroyed it, it would be due to a change of mind. We say the same thing about God, even though it's not a change of mind, but what has to happen at that point. When God first speaks to Adam and then to Eve, sorry, when God only spoke to Adam about this, and then God speaks to the women about the Torah, it's not necessarily that God is learning from it, but that this case demanded one action, and that case demanded another course of action. Was it in order for it to happen so that human beings fall to rise higher? That's, that's, that's a theory that we're floating right now consistently. Um, is it for another reason that we don't know of or that we haven't yet explored? Very possibly. When it came to Torah, did God really want to make sure that everyone was on board and got it? Seems like it. So it seems like this was... This story that we study tonight seems from the get-go there was something about it 
that needed to at least be open to things going sideways, if not even more intentionally planned for it. But excellent questions. Another question, if I yeah. may. If the purpose of creation <coughs> was for, for, for us to, um, to be godlike, to evolve and to, to um, elevate the mundane, wouldn't that then be the answer that God fully intended for Adam and Eve to, uh, to, to eat from, from the tree of God? Yeah, that's, that's, the ultimate, that's, that's really the ultimate answer. In other words, if we posit that the greatest accomplishment, the greatest, like the, the, the phrase that I use, the greatest light is born of the greatest darkness, then how could you compare Adam and Eve rejecting bad and engaging good without having the taste of bad, how can you compare that rejection of what you haven't ever tasted to the rejection of what you have tasted? By the way, the Talmud says this. It says, in the place where Bali Tshuva stand, that Tzadah can't stand. A place where someone who's tasted the other side and has nonetheless said, no, I, I don't want it anymore. Where that person stands is so much higher than someone who's never tasted it before. Because you don't know what you're saying no to. Right? right, someone who's had that experience and still somehow pushes back, which we've all done. Right, that's higher. It's a greater transcendence. Then yes, then then never having it and rejecting it because you know it's not your thing. Now, not to take, but there's two values. There's innocence, that's a value, but there's also the depth. It's like the rep. Uh, um, a teenager once came to Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said, you know, why is life so difficult? It's so difficult to do the right thing. It's challenging every day. This temptation, that temptation. It would be so much better if life was easy, if things were clear and there was clarity and not confusion. The Rebbe said to him, what's the difference between a photograph? No. He said, what's more valuable, a photograph or a painting? So the, the young man thinks to himself and he says, I mean, photographs are valuable, could be valuable, but paintings are typically more valuable. So he says, I don't understand why, the rabbi says. A painting, a, a photograph is perfect. A painting is imperfect. So why is it more valuable? And the answer is because there's beauty in the struggle. There's beauty in the imperfection. There's beauty in getting it wrong, but trying really hard to get it right. There's beauty in that. There's depth in that. Take a perfect picture it's good for Instagram. But a, but a photograph, yeah, the Mona Lisa. Imagine if, if uh, Da Vinci took a picture of the Mona Lisa. All right, fine. But a, but a, but a painting, can't compare. Can't compare. Why? Because of the imperfection. Because of the struggle that the artist had in taking something in, processing it, feeling it, living with it, and then putting it back out there for the world. That's valuable. So angels and Adam and Eve before the sin, they were like snapshots of perfection. Perfect. Yeah. But where's the depth? Anyway, all right, with that, I'm going to close. Thank you all for joining. It was a treat and a pleasure to be with you. I can't wait till next session. All right, take care, everybody. Thank you. All right, good night. Zai Gazun, take care, everybody. Stay healthy, stay well. Bye, thank you all.